Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is Peter, James, and John. Now, if you've been following the Bible study lately, you might know that we had a whole session about Peter. We had a session about James and we had a session about John. Why on earth would we have yet another session about all three of them together? Well, they symbolize the three essentials of salvation. So they have a very important lesson to tell us. And there are stories, particularly about Peter and John, that indicate something about the future of Christianity, not the past future, the future future of where Christianity is going from here. So I invite you to come on board for that. Uh, can you join me in an opening prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together in your name. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us, Lord. Give us insights and open our hearts to your message. Amen. Amen. Very good to be with you all. Uh, I want to tell you that there will be no live Bible study next week. I'll be out in Arizona with my family of origin. I also wanted to mention that this is rather a special day for Bible study because um, on July 28th, this is July 29th, July 28th, 2010 was our first ever Bible study. So this is our fifth anniversary. And uh, so that's fun. So including tonight, we will have posted 232 episodes on our website. We have 28,452 page likes. 29,508 views of these Ustream videos. And thanks to you and your support, we've been able to upgrade our camera equipment. We're still just running with a small volunteer part-time crew and everything. Uh, but I'm very, very pleased. I just couldn't have imagined it would grow the way that it's grown already and the best has yet to come. So thank you for your part in that, friends. Amen. And sending love out to those of you watching online. And... Uh, also, let's see, there were two people that I wanted to say a prayer for here. Did I write it down in my phone, I think? These were these uh, victims. Um, I got their names from somebody who watches Bible study who knew these people personally. Macy Bro and Jillian Johnson, who passed away in that shooting last week. And also sending love out to our friend Mike, who's been in recuperation out in Arizona and all the rest of you beloved people on the phone and getting the audio and everything else. So let's talk tonight about Peter, James, and John. And uh, you've heard from previous Bible studies, if you're on board with us or you see those titles, Peter symbolizes faith, James symbolizes charity, and John symbolizes good works. So let's look at a few stories to begin with in which they are all together. Oh, why don't we start with Mark, actually, in the New Testament, chapter 5. Peter, as you remember, had a brother, Andrew. So it's interesting that Andrew's not included in this group. It's just Peter by himself and then the brothers, James and John. Let's look at Mark, chapter 5. Um, oh, let's see... Uh, Let's pick up at verse 35 there. 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
As soon, mm. Go on. As soon as Jesus heard the words that were spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Yes. So it specifies that John is the brother of James, and those are the only three who are allowed to come with him. And what do they experience? What do they witness? Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Mm. Immediately, the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. <clears throat> but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. Mm. Yes, so this beautiful um, raising of this girl who's only 12 years old. Now, it strikes me as we read that, that this is what we're talking about tonight, uh, Partly what this symbolizes is the rebirth of the church. You know, there was a church, there was a whole religious era that I call Christianity version 1.0. And then it got to the point where it died and the Lord wanted to resurrect it. It's interesting to me that the only disciples who were allowed to witness that were Peter, James, and John. And I submit that that was because of the symbolism of Peter, James, and John that those are the three essentials of faith. You can sort of, you know, if you're resurrecting the church, you can kind of do without Bartholomew, or you don't absolutely have to have Levius there, but you've got to have faith and charity and good works. Those are the three essentials of salvation, and that's what will bring the church back to life. Uh, let's turn to the left and go actually back to Matthew chapter 17. This is the story of the transfiguration. We don't have time to read the whole thing tonight, but right in that first verse there. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Now, again, why just take those three people and give them that incredibly special experience of seeing him in his glory? And they soon see Moses and Elijah with him and so on. Why were they the ones to, be, to have that privilege? It's because they represent faith, charity, and good works, and they represent those three working together. It's very important that those three be together. You don't want to have one separate from the other. So when they're named together, and you notice again, John, his brother. You know, it's always mentioning that John is the brother of James, and no mention of Peter's brother Andrew in, in that story. And then if you can turn back to Mark, turn to the right again, and let's go to the end of Mark to chapter 14, verse 33. We discussed this already in a previous week. And he took Peter, James, well, oops. Say that again? Uh, Mark 14, just starting at, like, let's say, verse 32. Weird. Oh, okay, I was 33. 
Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. That's right. And so this is the very eve of the crucifixion. And everybody's praying. And then he takes another group, that smaller group with him to pray. Peter, James, and John, always in that same order. Why are they in that order? Again, I would submit to you, I can't prove it to you, but I, I believe the order is always that way because Peter corresponds to faith and something of the mind. Another way that Swedenborg puts it is that Peter represents truth in your mind, James represents truth in your heart, and John represents truth in your life. It's an interesting way to put it. And so first of all, you take the truth in your mind, that's Peter, and then as you do repentance and you, you live by that truth, it comes into your heart, it changes the nature of your heart, and then it comes down into good works. And that's why these things are presented that way. And the good works are primarily coming from your charity, from, from your love, when the three are together. And that's why it so often says that John is James's brother, you know, that, that emphasizes that connection, that it's coming from that charity or that goodwill toward the neighbor is coming into Acts. Mm. Now, look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, to see an interesting little tidbit here. Look at five. Um, this is such a great, great story. Um, there are two stories in two different Gospels, and they seem to be just separate stories, but they have a very similar theme of catching a lot of fish. Uh, okay, let's just read from the beginning of chapter five there, shall we? Luke, right? Yes. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. Mm, isn't that great? that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret mm -hmm. and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. I see. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Simon is Peter, right? Another name for Peter. And asked him to put out a, li put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Mm. What a wonderful image. Go on. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon... Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this is interesting partly just from a little historical detail, which is that they would not sail. People couldn't swim then. You would not sail far from shore. You would not go out into the deep. When he had them cross all the way over, it was seven miles across the Sea of Galilee. And you would not, you know, that was considered very unwise. You'd get stuck halfway out there, a storm comes up or something, and, and you can't swim. Uh, so he's... So after they're in the shallow water and he's teaching people, then he says to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. And what does Simon say? But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now, this is very similar to that story at the end of John that we touched on last week where uh, the Lord's on the shore and he says, put your nets on the, on the right side of the boat. And then they caught a tremendous number of fish. And they both have this mention of toil toiling all night, you know, trying to catch fish all night and not catching anything. Go on. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in to the To their other partners. 
partners. Hmm. They signaled to their partners. Oh, they had partners. Okay, they signaled to their partners. Go in, on. In the other boat to come and help them. Hmm. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Hmm. I love that. When Simon and this is such a great little moment in the story. How would you react if you'd seen it? You know, trying to catch fish all night, catch absolutely nothing. Then the Lord in the morning says, well, just go out into the deep, let down your nets. And then they catch this ridiculous amount of ship, uh, ridiculous amount of fish in their ships. And then what does Simon Peter say? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And this is apparently, in this gospel, I believe it might be the first interaction between Jesus and Peter. The whole, the whole thing is just getting going here at the beginning. So I, I, it's just a wonderful moment, I think, where, where Peter just, just says, Leave me alone. I am a sinful man. You know? uh, <laughs> Uh, because he's just encountered something absolutely astounding in what what just happened. So it's funny. You don't say, oh, you're wonderful. I'll follow you anyway. <laughs> he says, go away. <laughs> we should have nothing to do with each other because I'm a sinful man and you are something else. You know? mm. And what, what was that explanation? For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. Mm. And so also were James and John, oh. the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. They were partners. They were already partners. Peter and James and John were fishing partners. It says so. They were partners. And so when he's catching all these fish, they call in the partners. Isn't that fascinating? So it's like the mind or Peter is catching something and it's too much for him. So call in the love, call in the good works. We got to work on this together. And they fill both of these boats with, with so many fish and everything. And then it helpfully explains after that, oh, they were partners, says right there. And that's the way they are supposed to be. Faith and charity and good works are intended to be partners. Faith was never intended to be alone. It was never intended to be the sole means of salvation, irregardless of whether you've done anything with your, with your life or done, ever done anything good for somebody else. They're partners. They were partners at the beginning, and they're supposed to be partners forever. That's the whole design of it. And let's just read that 11th verse there, or 10th verse and 11th verse. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. You will catch men. Yes. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed. Yes, that's the call in, in Luke. Isn't that great? Uh, that's just wonderful. Um, and I wanted to just point out some scriptures in this connection. Um, oh, let's just go back to Matthew chapter 3 real quick. Don't you have John the Baptist there? And isn't he coming in verse 2? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he's talking to the people, he says in verse 10 there, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Pretty clear notion that it does it doesn't it's not rocket science to figure out that the trees are people and that the good fruit is doing good things for others and that if you're not bearing good fruit then you're cast in a fire which is hell you know 
uh, you, you won't be able to avoid going to hell if you're not doing anything good for people. This is the actual teaching of the New Testament. So that's a testimony to the fact that our good works, that's like John, our good works, our good fruit is necessary for our salvation. In Matthew 25, you see the same thing. We don't have time to read it right now, but at the end of Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, there's that whole parable of the sheep and the goats. And the sheep who are saved and they go into everlasting life are the people who have been doing good things for others. It doesn't say anything about their faith. Not, not a whisper about their faith. It's just that they're doing good things for others. So this to me is evidence, again, that those who do good works, that's the basis of salvation. And if you didn't do those things, it says in verse 46, these shall go, in away, go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Um, so those are passages that speak very strongly to good works being an essential of salvation. Uh, in John chapter 3, even though John means good works, he has very strong testimony about belief, doesn't he? And where he says uh, in 3.16, that famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So there, faith is obviously essential to salvation. You need to have faith. It's only the, where it becomes incorrect is where you say that you only need faith and you don't have to live well because John himself goes on to say at the end of that very discourse that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So that's the need for repentance and changing the way that we live. But John is, is very strong on the whole idea of belief being essential to salvation. And then in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you have that wonderful essay on charity. Some translations say love, and those are very equivalent words, agape. And the whole chapter is all about how if you don't have charity, you're nothing. Charity never fails, and so on. And at the very end, it says, now abides these three, faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. We need to have charity. We need to have good works. We need to have faith. Those three things need to be together. So that's one of the main messages to me out of this series on Peter, James, and John. And it helps explain why those three disciples would be taken into these extraordinary situations seeing the raising of this daughter, seeing Jesus glorified, um, being there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of the crucifixion, uh, because those th three things belong together and they're partners. Okay, now uh, let's go back to John chapter 21, because there are interesting, rather disturbing stories at the very end here. And people have done a lot of head-scratching through the centuries about what this means. So in John chapter 21, there's a story of the breakfast by the sea that's very similar to the one we just read. And we read it last week about fishing on the right side of the boat and all that. And then uh, look at verse 15. This is, this is the story that we need to think about a little bit here. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Mm. He said to him on the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Okay, and um, let's talk about that because there's a lot to talk about right there. And then we're going to look at that next verse in a moment. Okay, this is really butchered in the English translation. Um, they, they failed in two main respects, which is that there are two different words for love that you are used here. And also, I've known that for years, but I only found out this week that there are also two different words for knowing. Two different words for knowing and two different words for love that are used in this. And by flattening them both into the word know and into the word love, you miss a lot of the point of the exchange. If I could render it again, uh, he says to, so they've just had breakfast, and he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now that Greek is very ambiguous. There are like three things it could mean. It could mean... Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these people love me? Or it could mean, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than you love these people? Or it could mean, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than you love these boats and nets and all this sweet gear that you've got here? <laughs> and uh, the Greek is completely ambiguous. It doesn't explain... Mm. what it means, but mm. it, it's, it's intriguing. And the word that Jesus uses is the word agapao uh, for love, agape. Do you love me more than these? And Peter's answer is, yes, I phileo you, completely different verb. And phileo, to my mind, is more like it's like. It's a different kind of love. Agape is stronger. So he says, do you love me? Now, you may remember that Peter had a little denial problem a few chapters ago where he denied the Lord. How many times did he deny him? Three times. So the Lord asks him three times. Interesting. It's almost like he's being interviewed to see whether he can get back into the club. You know, like he did something very bad. And uh, is he going to get back in? And the Lord is asking him, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know, and he uses one word for no, you know that I like you. That doesn't come across in the English translation, but it's there in the Greek. And then he says, feed my lambs. And it's just very cryptic. You know, it's just like this little Sudoku puzzle and it's driven everybody insane forever. And then the Lord says to him the second time, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what he keeps calling him, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon has to do with hearing. Jonah means a dove. And he says again, do you love me? Do you love, love me? Agapao. And he says to him, well, yes, Lord, you know that I like you. He doesn't use the same word as I like you. And he says that again. And then the Lord says, tend my sheep. So he says, feed. the first one is just to feed the lambs but, or to pasture them kind of thing. But the second one is to tend, like to take care of all their needs, not just the food need, 
but all their need. Like you are going to shepherd them. You shepherd my sheep. Sheep, by the way, in Scripture mean people who are living lives of, of charity and goodwill, and love of the neighbor, and so on. And then Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you like me? He switches to the word that Peter's been using. And yet Peter is interestingly grieved because it's, it's like three times. And then he uses a different... And, and so the first time he said one kind of you know. Second time he said another kind of new, you know. And then when the Lord switched to do you like me, he uses a different kind of you know. Uh, Peter uses a different word for you know. Uh, he says, do you like me? And he says, Lord, you know in a different word for knowing, you know all things, you know that I like you. So Peter never, it's kind of sad in a way, he never goes to the Lord's word. The Lord just adapts to him. Okay, we're talking like, that's the kind of relationship we got. All right, I'll, I'll, do, it, I'll do it your way, since you seem to be stuck with that. Uh, we'll, we'll go with like, that, that's, that's fine. But ask him again, you know, feed my sheep, pasture my sheep. Okay, and um, scholars have just said, well, these two words for no seem identical. I don't think it's meaningful or whatever, but to me, everything in Scripture is meaningful. You can't say that switching of the words is meaningless. Something is going on in there. There's great, great mysteries in there. And then we get this fascinating passage that we'll talk about a little more. Verse 18 now. This is the Lord talking to <coughs> Peter. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. Mm. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Mm. That doesn't sound good. Does, it, does that sound good? That doesn't sound very good, does it? So when you were one, young, you sort of took care of yourself and you walk wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands like you'll be helpless or something. Somebody else will dress you and they'll take you somewhere you don't even want to go. That's, hmm. After they've just had this exchange. And then I said, what a weird thing to say. And then let's read on. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Now, a lot of people say that this is a reference to, you know, forward reference to Peter being crucified upside down, hmm. although it's not absolutely explicit in the just stretching out your hands and, and so on. Hmm. Uh, and go on. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And here again, the, the, the English doesn't quite get across the force of the Greek, which is keep following me. It's a present tense imperative, and that means repeated action. You know, keep following me. Hmm. So then what happens? Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Aha, uh -huh. this was a story we read about last time where Peter was sitting at the Last Supper and John was leaning on the Lord's chest and Peter asked John to find out who would betray him. And so here's a reference to that story. And Peter, turning around, sees this disciple. Now, wait a minute. Look at this, friends. In verse 15, his name was Simon Peter. And the Lord referred to him as Simon, son of Jonah. 
Verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah. Verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah. Now all of a sudden he's just Peter. His name has changed. He's just Peter now. Okay, and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that is a reference to John. John, in the Gospel of John, is only referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the one, and it just adds this gratuitous detail that he was leaning on his chest at the Last Supper, which he was. And, uh, and so look at verse 21. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him. Yes, okay. So, so the Lord just said, Peter, when you were young, it was like this. When you're old, it's going to be like that. And then Peter goes, well, wait a minute. There's John. Oh. What about him? What about him? Don't you have like a nasty forecast for him or something? <laughs> and uh, so go on. Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And there it is again, that same Greek uh, present imperative. You keep following me. Uh, if, if I want him to stick around until... What is he talking about when he comes? This is after his resurrection. He's already died in the flesh and he's been resurrected. So he's talking about the second coming, right? He's talking about when I come again. So he says, okay, here's you know, something that, that the text says, that's how the death by which he'll glorify God. But um, what about John? What's going to happen to John? So read verse 24 there, if you would, good friend. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is oh, true. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have had you read verse 23. There we go, <gasps> 23. I skipped. 23, then, okay, so... Till, uh, what is that to you? Okay, you keep following me. 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. That he would not die. John would never die. There have been a few. It's a very small elite group of people who never die. And there's <laughs> one in the Old Testament or they think, they're, you know, Enoch walked no more. You know, uh, he was no more because he walked with God and there's Elijah who's caught up in the chariot, you know, with the you know chari chariots of fire and all that. Um, they took this to mean that John was not going to die, but the writer of this gospel says, "Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you?" Yes. What business of yours is it if he? sticks around till I come back. That, that's all he said. He didn't, didn't make any promises. And then let's just read the last two verses because here we are. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Amen. Okay, so what is going on here, this weird end of the Gospel of John? What is going on? Well, uh, the structure that we've been talking about for the last few weeks really helps us out here, I think, because if you see that Simon means faith and John means good works, uh, what is going on here is that Jesus is actually predicting what is going to happen in Christianity version 1.0 
the whole arc of it, thousands of years, that faith is going to be very, very important. That will, in effect, be the church of Peter. Faith will be the most important thing in that church. And when faith was young, it dressed itself, it walked wherever it wanted to go. Faith was pure, it was good in the beginning of that church. But at the end of that church, when that faith was old, it was, it was blind and helpless, and other people would dress it up in whatever. Faith got very corrupted at the end. Faith was no, no good anymore, and faith was being carried to places it didn't want to go. And why was that? Because it was separated from James and John. It was faith separate. That's why he's referred to as Peter. Peter is faith separate here. Uh, Simon, son of Jonah, is, is, it's related to the dove and to hearing and it's, it's, you know, feed my lambs and all that. that. That's faith when it's working conjointly with charity and good works. But here at the end, it's talking about faith when it becomes faith alone. The Lord was already predicting moments after he was resurrected, just a few days later, he's predicting that faith is going to go downhill at the end. And man, does that look true from this perspective right now. But there's this interesting exchange where Peter looks over, faith looks over at good works and says, well, what about good works? What about good works? And the Lord says, if I keep good works going till I come back, what is that to you? And the way Swedenborg explains this is he says that it's true, that it, the person, John, passed away. He physically died, went to the spiritual world in his spirit and so on. But what John symbolizes did last throughout Christianity version 1.0. There have always been people who are practicing good works. And in fact, that until I come again, the second coming, the part of the church that's going to see the second coming is the part that's devoted to good works. Good works can see the Lord. We talked last time about the fact that good works are more intimate with the Lord than faith or even than, than charity. Good works is right where the Lord lives. So at no time in Christianity has there been a, a lack, you know, like zero people in Christianity who are living good lives. That, that's never happened. Faith has gone crazy, all these ideas about the rapture of people being sucked out of their shoes and all kinds of crazy ideas. So faith is staggering around like, you know, it's lost its way. But good works have been there throughout, and they will be what will carry the church into Christianity version 2.0. And you see the same thing taught in Revelation. Let's go back to Revelation at the very right hand of your book, and let's look at you know, it's John who's on the Isle of Patmos who sees this whole thing. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about the second coming and what's going to happen when Christianity version 1.0 yields into Christianity version 2.0 and not a minute too soon. The book of Revelation suggests that there will be big upheaval. You know, there's all that craziness, the dragon and, and all this stuff going on. The dragon means faith alone and... and um, so, and then look at chapter 21, verses 1 and 2 here. We read them last time. It will not harm us to hear them again. 
Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now, there's been a rumor going around that this means that the physical sky is going to be destroyed and there's going to be something different. The planet will be destroyed and there'll be a different place. It's not what it's talking about. The heaven is about the heaven. That's actually talking about the heavens, the afterlife, a spiritual world. And the new earth is talking about a new church. There will be a new religious philosophy, a new approach. Uh, the old heaven, you know, they, they've, they've passed away. Uh, go on. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the meaning of this is amazing. Faith by itself, faith alone, does not see that. It doesn't see the New Jerusalem coming. It's off track, it's blind, it's old and everything, can't, can't see it. But good works can see it. People who are in good works can see it coming. These are the people who are meant by the fish in that other story. This great abundance of fish are people who are living good lives. They're ready for the message. They're living a good life. They're hungry for truth and everything. They're ready for the message. Faith alone is somewhere else. It's, 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 it's old and it's dressed in the wrong clothes and is going the wrong direction. And uh, that's what happens to faith at the end when it's separated from those other things because they have, they're the three essentials of salvation. They have to be together. When they're separated out, that's what happens to Peter at the end. He loses the Simon. He loses the Jonah, whatever. He's just Peter and, and it's not good. But John lives all the way through. He does live until the Lord comes again, and he sees it. He's the one who can see it. And what this means is that when we are involved in good works, we're in a position to see that second coming happening, to see the Lord coming. Uh, and look at 22 verse uh, 8. Just mentions John again. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Mm. Now, John, and there's a mention in here somewhere in 21 verse 18. It has a little mention about the nature of this city of the holy Jerusalem that's coming down. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The entire city was pure gold. Not a pragmatic building material, but as a symbolism, it's something very beautiful. Gold, too, has to do with these, with these good works from, from heavenly love. That's what the entire city is. It's, it's not some gold and some silver or whatever. That's the whole point of the new church. The reason John sees the new church coming, the Christianity version 2.0, is because he's like it. That's what will characterize this new Christianity, it will be, as I talked about last time, the church of John, not the church of Peter. Now, this is kind of mind-blowing to us because we are so used to, aren't we, just like all our lives, the way we think about churches and how do you know whether you're in this church or not, everything's based on the idea of doctrines, of teachings. Well, what do you believe? You know, you meet somebody from another faith and you say, well, what do you believe? That's the important thing. It, what, what is it that separates us or whatever? I don't even know what a church that's based on good works looks like. You know, what, is, what does it look like 
where it doesn't hardly matter what you believe in the same. I'm not saying faith will be irrelevant. It still needs to be in there. But uh, Swedenborg says that in the ancient church, it really there was lots of different approaches and different thoughts and different beliefs. The thing that made them all one is that they all believed in loving the neighbor. And that's what they were all working on. And that's what united the church. We're going back to a state where it's going to be about love in action. That's what's going to characterize this. Isn't that what the Lord says about the disciples? By your love, you know, they'll know that you're my disciples. Uh, that's what's going to be striking. Not, wow, what a scintillating intellectual argument you just had about those three fine points of doctrine. You know, that's not how they're going to know that you're his dis disciple. It's because of the love. It says in Zechariah chapter 2, that of the Jerusalem, that the, the, the Lord himself says, I will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. That wall of fire is the love. The first thing you encounter when you encounter Christianity version 2.0 is this blasting love is the first thing you experience. Only when you get through the wall of love do you see, oh yes, there's a great abundance of truth in here too. I'll be the glory in her midst. That's about the truth that's in the, the truth's in the middle of it. The fire is all around because you lead with the love card. That's what's drawing people. That's the first thing they encounter is the love in action. This is the church of John and that's where we're going. John is going to last until the Lord comes again. He's going to see the new Jerusalem coming down because it's all about John. We've been so Peter-focused, even in a literal way, and Peter's not bad, but uh, he falls apart at the end. When he gets off on his own, it, it, doesn't go, it doesn't go well. It's good works that really are able to see the Lord. Okay, another thing we need to talk about in connection with this. You see, wasn't there that thing in Genesis? I mean, what do you mean good works? Wasn't there that thing in Genesis about people got kicked out of the garden and then after they got kicked out of the garden, wasn't that thing where they would work by the sweat of their brow? Like, isn't that a fallen state? Work? Isn't, isn't work and use, isn't that a bad thing? Don't we know very clearly from Scripture that work is bad? That's what happened after they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that they started having to labor and toil in the soil. That's not what God wants. He wants us to just eat fruit off the trees and lounge around, sing songs to each other, you know. Uh, enough of this work. Aren't we told in the Ten Commandments that six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the day of rest because God created the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh he rested. Rest is wonderful. Work is from hell. We all know that that's true. And in the, in, in, in the book of Revelation, it doesn't say, is, is it up here in the 14 verse 13? Let's see here. Dear reader, do you still have oh, any... Uh, <laughs> No, that's fine. I'm glad you're into it. <laughs> what book are we in? <laughs> Revelation. Oh, okay. <laughs> chapter 14, <laughs> verse 13. <laughs> Sorry to shock you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, 14. I have, I have not had very much sleep lately. No, okay, 14, right. 13. Serving the Lord. Oh. Then oh, I heard Lord. a voice from heaven saying to me, Write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their work 
follow them. Okay, so the, you, the work will follow them, but basically this is the idea that's given people this vision of heaven where you sit around playing harps and you praise God all day and you certainly don't have to do anything or get your hands dirty or whatever because uh, work is bad. That's what the, you know, when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that's when the, when the work began. Rest is good, work is bad. And we all have lower selves, do we not, good friends? And we've probably all in the course of our lives felt that sense of like, do I have to, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> doing work. Uh, uh, it doesn't seem like a great joy to us. Now, Swedenborg's take on this is so interesting. He says that Christianity has just like massively uh, missed the boat on, on this one, misunderstood this teaching. The teaching, and so what's interesting is that if really, if, if people take the message of Scripture to be that being idle is godly, you know, to sing songs, to, to chant to the Lord and to worship all day long, and, but not to do anything for anybody else. And there's almost nobody on the planet who, who follows that kind of a program. But if that's really considered holy, and then it's a real fallback thing of, well, if you have to, then live in the mucky, filthy, stinky city and get a job and get your filthy lucre to bring home for your rotten little rug rats and, you know, live that earthly sort of life. But it's not the high holy life that you would get if you were up on the mountain worshiping God. Um, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that like 99.99% of Christians have disobeyed that, like, you know, most of us have jobs, most, most of us work, you know, that's what we do. And yet there's the kind of this idea uh, that's out there, not everybody has this idea, but this idea is out there that that, that working is sort of a fallback, it's like that's the fall, you know. If we were really in the golden age, we'd just be quaffing freshly squeezed fruit juices and drinking out of a clear stream and loafing around in, in the sweet meadows all, all day. Um, Swedenborg talks, as some of you know who've read his works, at the beginning of his work on marriage, called Marriage Love or Married Love or Conjugal Love, he talks about this. He has the same set of stories in True Christianity, Volume 2, uh, about people who go into the other world. Uh, there's one great moment where an angel says to uh, someone who's newly arrived in the other world, you didn't think the life of heaven was a life of inactivity, did you? And it uses the word sheepish. They, they sort of, well, kind of, a little bit. You know? <laughs> um, uh, there are apparently a lot of Christians who go over to the other side thinking that, okay, hey, the work is done. It's kind of that dream of the retirement, isn't it? Like, like okay, you put in your years of sweat and toil, and then you have this joyful retirement, you know, where you, you don't have to do that anymore. And so heaven is like this eternal retirement, you know, where you, where you don't have to do anything. You know, the, the, um, but when you, think about, when you think about that, first of all, let's, let's look at it rationally for a little bit. What kind of world, really, if you really suspect that God's will is for us not to work, and this is something that hell dreamed up for us, that, that we all have to go do these jobs, what sort of a world would we work in? What, what kind of world would we live in if nobody was working? You know, if nobody was doing anything, wow. Wow, it, that would be a difficult 
world to live in, wouldn't it? Uh, work is such an important part of our life. What Swedenborg says about these passages is that we've been very wrong about that understanding. Actually, usefulness is the essence of heaven. It's the essence of heaven. But let me see if I can try to sketch for you what the difference is. What, what it's talking about in Scripture when it talks about labor, one thing that labor means in Scripture, because there is such a thing, you know, it's not the Scripture's lying. There is a kind of labor that gets introduced after the fall, and we do seek a rest from that labor. That labor takes two forms. One is, Swedenborg says, that it means the difficulty of learning truth and doing good from your own lower self. That is laborious, you know, trying to get yourself to be good, you know, that, that, is a labor, that, that is some work. Think about it when it used to be in the human race where there was not hereditary evil, when there was not hereditary self-centeredness, not hereditary sort of lust for all the money of the world or lust for power or those kind of things. Wow, you know, like regenerating was a little bit easier. You know, getting ready for heaven was just like not a long drive, you know. Uh, but when you start to get evil in there, all of a sudden you got labor. When you're, see, the parable of the sower is all about chopping up the ground, right? It's getting the ground ready. First of all, the ground's too hard. Then there's too little depth of soil. Then there's enough soil, but it's full of weeds. These are three stages of what we have to get rid of before we're, we're good ground. Well, the cultivation of the ground that people will do in the sweat of their brow is that once there's evil in the human heart, doing that spiritual work gets a lot harder, especially if you've spent your youth acting out. You know, I, of course, was in constant prayer and meditation during my youth. Uh, <laughs> So I don't, know, alert. I, I don't know what I'm talking about here, <laughs> but I understand that other young people sometimes act out. Um, the, <laughs> once you've acted out a little bit, you get a taste for these evils and things. And, and uh, so that's some labor. That's some warfare to try to overcome that and move beyond that. That's, that's, not, that's not easy. The, the degree of work, that's what it's talking about. So in the Garden of Eden, it was easy. The, the, it, it wasn't that difficult because you didn't have evil and falsity in there yet. Once you get those things in there, and they're in the human heart and they're in the human mind, we're born with this tendency towards self-centeredness and, uh, and worldliness and all this, loving the world more than the neighbor and loving ourselves more than God is the way that Swedenborg often puts it. Then, it's, then, then you've got labor. That's a labor situation. And what we're looking to get to through those six days of labor is to get to the day of rest where our heart is in a good state, where our mind is in a good state, and the fighting is over. You know, we don't have to war against hell anymore because the Lord has brought us through and made us victorious. That's the rest is talking about, not inactivity. I don't know anybody who likes that idea of just playing a harp endlessly on a cloud. I don't know, you know. You wear out your fingers, and you know, I, I don't know. Just doesn't sound that great. And would you really love and adore a God whose idea of your greatest happiness would be to sit on a cloud and play the harp all day? Um, you know, I'm not feeling it. But what Swedenborg says, the eternal happiness comes from a type of work that you love. We can see this, can we not, friends? Have we not in our lives? I hope it's true of all of you that at some point in your life, you have loved doing something. You've gotten so lost in it, you forgot to eat. You forgot to drink. You forgot, you've totally lost track of time. 
because you're so into it. And if you had to finally crash in bed or something, you can't wait to wake up in the morning and do it again. That is heaven. That's a lack of labor, you know? That's just joyful activity. Why would the Psalms refer to the angels as powers if they did nothing? That's an interesting question. Why would they be referred to as powers if they never did any? How do you get strong if you never do anything? Every angel you see in the story, they're, they're doing all kinds of things. They're flying in, they're helping people, giving people messages about the Christmas story, and here's what's happening, and this person's going to be born. And, you know, they're always active when you see them. Um, it's that usefulness and that joy. We have also all, have we not, good friends, had the experience of labor. We've all had the experience of shoveling snow when you didn't want to shovel snow and when you didn't like the snow at that particular moment. Uh, or we've had the experience of, you know, just there's a lot in this life of doing stuff that our heart doesn't want to do. And we have, there's a lot of self-compulsion, isn't there? A lot of labor. That's the labor that will come to an end. The eternal rest is getting into that sweet spot like people who just love nothing more than skateboarding and all they want to do is skateboard and heaven is just getting to skateboard, you know? Uh, and there are equivalent things in all different areas. Swedenborg says that the number of functions and occupations in heaven is vastly greater than the number down here. We have relatively few jobs in this world compared to all the different functions in the other world that can be done with a love full of heart, uh, a heart full of love as well. Why not? And um, <laughs> so the church of John, you see, so isn't it like one of those things? It, let me draw an analogy. I'll probably get lost in this. And, and, um, but with the Ten Commandments, there's this interesting thing that God comes down on the mountain and he announces these Ten Commandments with thunder and fire and a trumpet and lightning and days of preparation and fasting and everything like that. And then what he hands to them is the same rules everybody on the earth is already following. <laughs> oh, thank you for this. That's great. Thank you. Um, why did he do that? Well, Swedenborg explains the reason he did that was because it wasn't that you don't already know that it's going to be bad to kill everybody, you know. Uh, he did that because he wanted to show you these are my rules. These are not just the world, worldly rules of society that you really need to sort of make the world work. These are the rules of heaven. These are rules that I love. They come from me. That was the purpose of the Ten Commandments coming in that way. Well, there's something similar here. We're all going through our jobs, doing our work, whatever it is, our, our activities, willy-nilly. But for thousands of years, Christianity has been doing that somewhat reluctantly or sort of thinking. I know there's been the Puritan work ethic and all this other kind of stuff, uh, but there are weird things about that too. Okay, you work really, really hard, but you're not allowed to dance or play cards or something. Anyway, I, I have an, a great mountain of ignorance about all that, but, the, um, uh, but so much of it has been this sense of like, well, you reluctantly have to go do your job, and then when you die, you go to the other world, you think, oh, well, I can't wait to quaff the freshly squeezed fruit juice and hang around, or I can't wait to worship God all day, every day, or, you know, the, the people have these crazy pictures of heaven. When they do the experiment in the spiritual world, nobody lasts more than about six days before they're going out of their minds 
with boredom and ennui because of what they thought was their heaven. Because there's actually no eternal happiness in those things. The eternal happiness comes from doing some pursuit that you love. Don't you see it in people who do artwork? Is there really like a day when they say, oh, I'm so sick of doing it? You know, they, they just, they go in and they, and they can't wait. Oh, there's a new thing. Oh, I found a new approach. That never has to end. That's the church of John. And you're doing that for other people. You know, you're, do, you're giving that gift to the community. And the more that people are coming from this, the better the community is. So we've all been doing it anyway. You can't, you can't get around it. Just like the Ten Commandments were the rules everybody was already following. But what the Lord has done here in a hidden subtle way in the scripture, but what he's done is he said, oh no, that's not just something that you have to do. It's a pain, but you have to get through it to work, but just wait till your big heavenly retirement in the sky or something like that. No, what he's saying is that that work, thank God it's Monday. That work is our heaven. Uh, there, there's, now, we're not always in heaven when we're doing that. And we've got a long way to go to get to the point where we're in heaven when we're doing the thing. Isn't it nice when you get to that state where you're shoveling snow and you actually love it and you see it sparkling off the snow and it's so beautiful? It's like 100 degrees here now, so it's fun to think about this right now. But, <laughs> but, the, uh, but it really is possible to be in that state where you're just in the right place at the right time. You're in the mood to be doing what you're doing. You've got the right spirit in it. Uh, you're doing it. You just want to bless the community with what you're doing and you're happy about it. It's so wonderful to get through to that Sabbath after doing the other kind of thing. So one of the beautiful teachings of Swedenborgianism is this idea that usefulness is a spiritual practice. And it's a spiritual practice where we can practice being angels now. Our work of all different kinds, I'm not just talking about our jobs, that people have to take various different kinds of jobs. But it's also, what is your pursuit? What's your hobby, your avocation? What do you love doing for people? And what's your unique love and your unique understanding? And how do those come down in good works? The new church is going to be the church of John. It's the church of usefulness, of productivity, of this love, in, love and faith in action. That's what it's going to be like. And understanding after years and years of thinking, oh no, I thought we were kicked out of the garden and we had to do this lousy work. Actually, the Lord is in this work. Think of that image of John from last week with his head on Jesus' chest. There's no separation between Jesus and good works. There's no distance whatsoever. The Lord is most present in us when we're doing that. And what he wants to do is to take us through this purification process to the point where we can really embody his love and his wisdom while we're functioning. That's the practice of heaven. And you just it's eternal. You'll never master it, but you keep working and working at it and getting better and better at embodying that. So exciting to think of being in a whole community of people who are working on that. And it's only getting better every year, every year, every year, getting better and better, people getting better. The Church of John... John was able to see that New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God because he was like it. Swedenborg says this explicitly because John represented good works, love and faith in action. And that's the church of the future. That's where Christianity is going. It's going toward the, the joy of angelic usefulness, of rejoicing, of experiencing heaven in the work, in the activity that we do in the things that we do, things that we write, or any interaction we have with people, 
trying to bring heaven into that interaction and represent heaven on earth. The holy city, New Jerusalem, is coming down from God out of heaven into this earth. That's all about coming down into John. It's not about, oh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or, you know, what's the difference between is the vivification before the renewal and the sanctification or is the sanctification after the renewal but before the vivification, you know, the stuff that Aquinas got into in the Middle Ages. No, it's not the church of Peter. This is the church of doing. This is the church of love and faith in action, growing in intelligence, growing in understanding of the word, growing in the love of the Lord, love of the neighbor, healing the world. So what those three apostles mean to conclude is they mean faith, love of the neighbor or charity, and good works. And that's why they belong together. Faith, when it gets broken out by itself, actually, actually rots and falls apart. That's the lesson that we were reading about tonight. But when those three are together and when they're concentrated in John in usefulness, in the joy, the heavenly activity of being a, a, a blessing to other people, that that is the Lord's highest joy for us and that he's present with us in that. Sell your mountaintop cabin or, or wherever you're planning to do your 20-year meditation retreat. Uh, just stay down here, get busy serving other people. That There's nothing wrong with going up to the mountain now and then, but the point is the church of John is the future. This is where Christianity is going. We're headed in the direction of good works and usefulness. Thank you, friends. Shall we close with a prayer? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you gave us a model when you came into this world. You were constantly in motion, teaching and healing, healing and teaching, preaching, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, constantly in motion, sometimes up all night doing good to people or getting straight on the next thing that you needed to do. You are a model of usefulness, Lord. And we pray to have a little bit of your spirit in us. Show us the way, Lord God. We're crawling on our hands and knees Show us how to move in the direction of that Christianity version 2.0 that's all about John, that's all about the usefulness, that's all about you being present in us. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, and being useful, so that we can be a heaven for others. Amen.